Hello and welcome to the Folklore Podcast. I'm Mark Norman, folklore researcher and author. Before we move into today's episode, I just wanted to let you know that we've now created a new way to support the vital work that we're doing to collect and preserve folklore materials for the future through the Folklore Library and Archive project. If you haven't had a chance to look at this yet, then you'll find the website at www.folklorelibrary.com where you can see some of the work that's already taken place. You can now become a friend of the Folklore Library and Archive. It costs just £10 a year, or if you prefer, the sacrifice of roughly four cups of coffee a year while you're out shopping. Being a friend gets you priority access to tickets for events, as well as occasional discounts, priority research help for the materials held in the Folklore Library and Archive, a friend's newsletter, and more. As the group grows, we hope that it will turn into an autonomous support mechanism for the project, organising its own events and so on. That's in the future. For now, it's a new way to offer support for the project, which gets no funding other than through its own fundraising or donations. To sign up as a friend, please visit folklorelibrary.com support, where you'll find a link to join up. There's also a link in the show notes for this episode. Thank you. Today on the Folklore Podcast, we're looking at the subject of food. This forms the basis of many folklore festivals, customs and calendar events, but it also comes up in other places, such as fairy tales and literature. My guest today is looking at the latter. Dr Alessandra Pino is the co-author, along with food writer and recipe developer Ella Buchan, of A Gothic Cookbook, a forthcoming title which is almost completely funded now via Unbound. The book examines different works of Gothic literature and the food represented in them, from Dracula and the meals served to Jonathan Harker, to the implications of a bitter tangerine in Daphne du Maurier's Rebecca, and many points in between. Alessandra is an expert on how the Gothic, food and cultural memory intersect. She was born in Hampstead, London, to an Italian mother and Venezuelan diplomat father, and grew up in several different countries. She holds university degrees in English literature from Naples L'Oriental and in translation studies from Westminster and worked with a Michelin-starred chef for nearly 10 years before entering the world of dark academia. Alessandra brings to a Gothic cookbook her deep academic knowledge, digging into food themes and motifs in a series of classic and contemporary novels from the 19th century to the present day. She joined me recently to discuss the project. Right, Ali, welcome to the Folklore Podcast. It's lovely to have you here. Thank you, Mark. It's great to be here. Thank you so much. Oh, it's my pleasure. Now, uh, before we kick off proper and talk about Gothic cookbook and food and stuff, let's talk about you first. Tell everybody a little bit about yourself and what you do and how you got interested in these sorts of things. Sure. I've recently completed a PhD at the University of Westminster, which I'm really happy to have finished it was a great great experience and um uh, but you know all consuming <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, and it yes. was, yeah it was all about my PhD was actually about reliving traumatic experiences through a language that relies on food so as a parallel project and to distract myself a little bit from that I started researching the idea of gothic food through literature 
and uh, as a diversion, as you do. And the fact that food um, has a language of its own and is actually able to tell a story within the story. And it's not just a prop or an embellishment. And so this is how a Gothic cookbook came to be, really. And I'm co-authoring the book with my friend and uh, food journalist, Ella Bucken, who, like me, is really passionate about all things food. And the illustrations are by the talented Lee Henry of Ounce of Style. Yes, it looks, as far as I can tell from looking just at the cover, which is uh, all, all that we have a proper look at so far, absolutely beautiful. And I think um, once it goes to publication, it's going to be an exquisite book. Um, you are approaching this on a um, kind of parallel approach. So you're looking at the literature side and Ella is looking at the food side. Is that fair yes. to say? The recipe development side, yes. And it's a really special project because, well, first of all, it's the only Gothic cookbook, um, which is quite funny in itself because when I first approached publishers and agents, the thing that they said most frequently was, well, there isn't one already. It doesn't exist. <laughs> this idea is completely new. And um, so it might be telling that maybe there isn't a market for it. And, and I was thinking, yes, maybe, maybe you're right. Maybe this is a really outlandish idea. Um, but then luckily we approached Unbound and they were so enthusiastic and we got caught up in their enthusiasm. So we just carried on. And, you know, it's a special project to us because it has new insight in how food operates within the context of some of the most well-known Gothic novels. Um, but we'll also have recipes inspired by 30 novels, the, the 30 novels that are featured and the ingredients and food in the text themselves. Um, so Gothic novels aren't really full of food and they're not famously known you know, for their for their lavish amounts of food but still um there are lots of food references and these food references are quite important so we will give an insight into how it works and how they contribute towards the plot and it will be an essay and five recipes per chapter so let's start at the beginning and i'm going to ask you to define first of all for people the word gothic and that's because in terms of the gothic gothic literature i think sometimes people have different ideas as to what the gothic actually resembles so what what does it mean for you uh, and ella in terms of the drawing together of information for this book yeah so the word gothic itself is something that's characterized by mystery by horror by gloom and especially in literature, Gothic literature combines the genres of romance and, and horror. But, you know, for us, in terms of what it meant in these novels, it's really a type of writing that employs a kind of dark and picturesque scenery, um, melodramatic narrative devices, and it's meant to really inspire an overall atmosphere of exoticism, fear, mystery and dread. Now, for us, what was interesting is how does this actually happen through food, um, because we don't really think of the Gothic in relation to food normally, but in actual fact, the Gothic really gives authors a way to discuss social anxieties. So we, we will, for example, be doing Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte. And, um, you know, this novel, for example, it depicts uh, quite a, um, you know, a, a difficult a new version of what could be our original idea of matrimony, of wedding, and um, specifically addresses kind of romanticised ideals of marriage that are taught to women. So introducing kind of difficult topics also to do with gender, to do with social class, um, 
discrimination and um, other topics, which perhaps one wouldn't think in relation to, to, to food, but actually they're all there through food scenes. So we found that really, really interesting. Um, take, for example, Rosemary's Baby as well. We get an insight into the relationship between the characters through how they eat and what they prepare and the dynamics of, um, of what they actually um, talk to each other over the kitchen table or the dinner table. You've got some other ones in there that you would expect to see. Uh, Dracula is is obviously in there. Um, the Woman in Black is in there, which which is wonderfully gothic, and I think everybody should have a crack at, at bone broth as a, yes. <laughs> as a recipe at one point of their lives, surely. Uh, what else have you chosen in terms of the stories? So we have The Bloody Chamber by Angela Carter as well, um, which is also another kind of insight into a difficult relationship there of, of what should be marital bliss, but in fact isn't really. <laughs> and, um, and then we have The Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson as well. Um, the Picture of Dorian Gray, where there, isn't, there aren't vast amounts of food, but again, there might be some food references or small details that we can then have um, like use as an inspiration for, for recipes, basically. And The Woman in White... And Rebecca by Daphne du Maurier, where there, there, are, there is quite a lot of food and these uh, food scenes which might seem quite quaint, uh, like tea times and cakes and references to, um, to ingredients and um, moments where they should be romantic. But actually, when you look at them closely and um, there are some characters kind of feeding other characters, you think what is this actually all about? Because it seems to be mostly centred around issues of power um, once one knows the truth. And I won't give any spoilers, um, but I mean, they're well-known novels, but you never know. Someone might not have read Rebecca or you know, Dracula. It's unlikely, but um, yeah. So, so it's more about uncovering these darker aspects of what relationships between the characters are and how food gives some telling signs of of, the, of what will happen in the future. A lot of the time, you know, we have uh, types of food that can give us uh, maybe a clue as to how the plot will develop. And we only realise that if we have food in mind as we're reading those novels. And lots of the, the novels I've already read, maybe, you know, two or three times, but it was only when I reread them with food in mind that I realised, oh, this is what the author is doing. And the interesting thing for me was kind of thinking about the fact, did the author even do this consciously or was it a subconscious effort you know it wasn't a conscious effort it was perhaps something that they weren't thinking about but because food is so so ingrained into our everyday and it's something that we do um you know multiple times a day we don't even realize how uh, how much it absorbs um you know what's around us and the social aspect of it so that's what i find really fascinating as well Yes, it becomes ritualistic, doesn't it? In in some senses, in, at certain times of the year, for for us, you know, Christmas is an obvious example for a lot of cultures where food becomes something of a ritual. Does that come up as a as a theme in some of these stories as well? It definitely does, and you know, there's a time of the day where you must have tea time, and this might seem like something very pleasant, but actually, it can be quite oppressive if our heroine isn't really feeling that there is a family atmosphere, a joyous atmosphere of bonding. And I think this goes kind of hand in hand with what I was doing for my PhD, the fact that beneath the veneer of 
what seems to be social propriety, which is expressed through food, we do have these dark undertones of um, constraint and aggression, sometimes pure violence, really. Um, and that's one of the pressures that we feel, I think, today um, as a people, we are kind of always looking to food uh, and trying to get comfort from food. But at the same time, our food patterns and um, habits have changed so that we don't feel, at least this is the, the feeling I get from uh, reading and from watching a lot of um, films, mainly horror films, where we see this portrayal of food, which um, is actually something which isn't totally positive. And I think there is anxiety with regards to what we consider to be good food, bad food, healthy food, whether a food is organic, what kind of meat is that really? Do we trust what the supermarkets give us? And what can we do to kind of make our world a better place through food? Because a lot of it has to do with the fact that we are so separated and cut off from our sources of production that we are kind of blinded to what goes on behind the scenes. And you see this a lot in films and in literature where behind closed doors are the doors of the kitchen. You don't really know what's going on. You trust that what will be served at your table is something healthy, something good, that it really is organic. But how do we know 100%? Sometimes we don't. So we have to kind of trust um, trust that it's that it's you know okay to eat if that makes sense um i found that really really interesting and at um and then so that i went back in time because i noticed this trend in um you know in film in films and in horror films kind of from the 90s 80s 90s onwards and i thought how interesting you know oh here's the devil and that comes after a food scene or oh here we have a single parent family they're just eating a slice of pizza because, you know, the mum can't be bothered. So it's also very gendered, for example. And then some monster appears from a cupboard so or, or a wardrobe or something from under the bed. But it's always kind of following and very, very interlinked and related to food scenes. And I thought, what is this anxiety that we feel that always comes out following food or, you know, very close to, to what we eat? And, um, and so I went back in time. And I started looking at some of the, the most famous Gothic novels and how they use food to create a sense of anxiety. And I thought, how interesting. Food should be something joyous. You know, we bond at the, at the kitchen table together as a family event. But it's not, it seems to be shifting and changing. And I just found that really, um, yeah, intriguing. Give us a couple of examples from, from the works that you've chosen that, that inspire the gothic cookbook as as to how food is used how it appears within those stories whether it's a mechanism for something in particular or whether it is literally just a delivering of a meal yeah i i for example one that really surprised me was because i'd read the book many times and i hadn't particularly noticed any food in it but when i reread read frankenstein with food in mind and i was really really taken aback because um, scholarship hasn't really overly focused on the Frankenstein creature's vegetarianism, but the, the monster is vegetarian. And, uh, you know, this kind of, when you read it, it stands for this fact that the, the, the creature is vegetarian, stands for some sort of um, original benevolence. So um, the creature is kind of including animals within its moral codes, but he's really obstructed and quite violently frustrated when attempting to gain inclusion within the moral codes of humanity. And so it poses 
um, this creation of a companion so that so that it won't feel so alone. And it says, actually, my food is not that of man. I do not destroy the lamb and the kid to glut my appetite. So it's kind of creating a barrier between uh, him as a monster and then people. And vegetarianism is that way in which the creature marks a difference and the, and the separation from its creator. And it's, uh, you know, and I just found that really interesting. So we have made um, all our recipes also in a vegetarian, with a vegetarian alternative. It's interesting to see that lots of the monsters um, are, are not meat eaters, actually. And this is a trend that's continued now in the Gothic novel where you get uh, vegan serial killers or you get, you know, the fact that you don't eat meat doesn't necessarily mean that you're good. So there's this kind of twist um, in, uh, in this sense. And so, yeah, I just found that really interesting. So the fact that... Do you think that's, cu- do you think that's cultural or do you think that's deliberate as kind of an offset? So the, the, the blood and the meat and the, the mm. horror sits in the killing and then it's offset by the food being the opposite almost of that is it deliberate in that sense do you think or is it just a reflection of changing times yeah I wonder if it's that we've absorbed this idea that we do we do good if we don't eat meat however then you get the person that's totally evil and twisted in any case and so you show this by saying look even though you know they may not eat meat but you know and there's this kind of um, surprise element to it because you wouldn't expect it but I think the fact that we're, we're so separated from the modality of how animals are killed. And I think that makes an impact on how, whether or not you would choose to be vegetarian or not. And I think how informed you are. Um, I think that enters and it come, becomes part of what it means to live in a horrifying environment. And a lot of the books and, and films as well that we see you know we we have this vegetarian character and it's very clearly stated at the beginning of the text or the film and then one of the indications that they've been turned or possessed is the fact that they're suddenly eating raw meat and it's something inexplicable and the family are flabbergasted and you get all these reactions and it's through food so that's a real indication that food is so close to us in everything that we do that it's an indicator of morality of ethics Hmm. you know um and it's becoming more and more ingrained as we kind of i feel that we have less control over what we can do to to change what we eat and that becomes more part of how it's manifested in the media through these displays now the recipes in the book far outweigh the number of stories in the book um so you've drawn recipes from other sources as well, other than from within those stories or novels that you're examining. Um, how have you gone about that process and how do those recipes tie in with the other literature that you're looking at? Yeah, we try to go back in time to kind of the original um, recipe as far back as we can find it and then obviously added our own twist. Um, a good example, I think, is in Jane Eyre, where there is a seed cake recipe. And this is a really good scene full of tension and um, drama where Jane Eyre is at a Lowood school and Miss Temple, who is her teacher, um, gets told off for serving the girls bread and butter instead of letting them go hungry because their porridge is burnt and so 
the headmaster who's awful really kind of berates her and humiliates her in front of everyone. And after following this, she takes um, Jane Eyre and her friend Helen to one side and says, will you come to my rooms? I have you know, something I want to share with you. And it's this seed cake. And I thought that's such a great scene of kind of quiet rebellion through food because she's not meant to share this cake. And I think the headmaster would be not happy to know that she'd done this, but she chooses to do it anyway. And I think the misconception here is that Jane Eyre looks up to the teacher, but she actually, I think, loses a bit of respect through this. She enjoys the food and, um, and everything and she eats it but she then mentions that you know she didn't want to be like Miss Temple if that makes sense um because she didn't want to hide away and that's essentially what they were doing so this kind of secret um quiet rebellion of Miss Temple's inspired us to kind of look at this seed cake recipe and we went back to Hannah Glass's original nun's cake recipe um with caraway seeds and 35 eggs, which we will not be using <laughs> to make this recipe <laughs> and beating them by hand for, you know, 30 minutes. That's not going, going to happen. So we've adapted them, obviously. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's how, you know, we've um, gone about kind of looking at various recipes in their different forms and kind of working out what would work for the modern day um, cook. 35 eggs is a lot <laughs> of eggs for any cake, isn't it? Um, we, we think about food in terms of particular literary styles fairy tales for example there are obvious motifs where food comes up I'm, I'm thinking of like the poison apple yeah for example as a particular mechanism do you find the same thing in the gothic literature that you've been looking at is food used in particular ways to do particular things yeah i think um you know in terms of food, the fact poison is obviously plays a large role. And again, that ties in with the idea of trust. Uh, and it may come from the most unexpected sources. So you would, especially in fairy tales, you get the, the mother. In many of the older fairy tales, it is the actual mother. And then it's, it kind of transitions into the stepmother, which is slightly more distant. So you can accept it a little bit better because it's, it's still hard to conceive that a mother would poison their own children through lack of food and because of a situation of hunger. But lots of the, of the you know, stories and, uh, and plots centre around this and it's around the lack of food. And I think um, the Gothic shares quite a few formal and conceptual features with folklore and fairy tale. Some of the Gothic's best-known monsters actually come from, from folklore. But also vice versa, the Gothic helps shape new folklore, um, for example, in the... Spring-heeled Jack Spectre haunted London in the 1800s and stuff like that. So the core narrative types of fairy tale, like the quest and the escape narratives, also form the skeleton of much of, of Gothic fiction. So whether that the food involved could be an apple or it could be a piece of bread or it could be, you know, it's a symbol. It's what it actually um, represents as a symbol, I think, which is um, which is really interesting. And it's all about how we relate to those symbols. And those symbols change. So a lot of what I look at as well for my for my for what I studied was, you know, um, for example, the idea that you can have a type of food or a type of drink and it can mean totally opposite things. And so we feel that contrast within. So, for example, if you take the coffee, coffee was originally used to kind of excite us, keep us awake, you know, uh, and now it's become synonymous with relaxation and taking a break. So those two mm. things combined you know, 
I don't think we find it confusing, but they coexist within that word. Um, and that's um, really, really interesting. So it's like symbols that contain kind of this body of communication and um, a protocol of usages and situations. Um, as Roland Barthes said, who's a French theorist, so he, he, he famously stated this. So, uh, and also Jane Grigson, um, who I look to quite often, and she was saying, you know, the present day dangers are no longer vis as visible as they used to be because um, we used to be able to, you know, uh, in comparison to the past, like we used to, yes, have sand in the sugar and dried hawthorn leaves in the tea and water in the milk, but this was something that was considered to be vicious. Now, how do we know what gets put into our food and who does it? And it can be quite legal to change and modify and add enhancers. And, and so there's this sense of growing mistrust. Um, and this mistrust is just goes back to folklore as well. Like, can you trust that the apple is good to eat or, or not? Or are you going to you know, be killed by it? Do you think there's a cultural shift in the way that food is used uh, in in literature now as well because there's a cultural shift in the way that food is consumed more generally so you know in in more modern times there's less um less concentration on the dinner party and you know the the partaking of food and discussion over a long period of time and and more the kind of get into a fast food joint grab something to eat get out again and get on with something else do you think that change carries across into literature and food as well? I think it does. And there's a great book by Sidney Mintz called Sweetness and Power. And even in the 80s, he was mentioning the fact that our lifestyle is changing. And so we don't have enough time to find pleasure from sitting down and bonding through food with other people. And that was the primary, it was all, I mean, the primary function of food was to share it, to, to bond in many ways. And now it's kind of the opposite in the sense that you um, nurture yourself through food, but we don't have that time. So we kind of overlap and overlay different activities in order to gain increased pleasure. So we might eat and at the same time be on our phones, watch a film at the same time. You know, doing, We're doing three things at the same time. It isn't just that you sit down and you take that opportunity to converse with someone. Um, it just doesn't it doesn't fit into our lifestyle anymore and this hurried approach to food we see oh, quite often in books and even in science fiction you know the idea that you can just take a pill and it should um, give us enough um, nutrition we don't need that social interaction anymore well that was the basis of what food was all about um, because of our lifestyle and our lifestyle changes that's kind of also changed um, so, yes, you can definitely see that. Um, and, you know, the idea of the vampire um, and how a vampire eats, you know, there are different books that portray now different types of, of vampires. And they're quite sympathetic now towards um, vampires and the portrayal of these monsters. They're not so monstrous. You actually, you know, even starting with Interview with a Vampire uh, by Anne Rice in 1976, you're already seeing how vampires are more, more emotional beings also with Twilight, you know, so you kind of, um, instead of of, of, of being you know, maybe looking down on a vampire because they're a monster, you're actually trying to, um, yeah, to kind of see the good side. And um, and that comes hand in hand with the, yeah, how they eat and um, and what they do and how sympathetic they are towards, towards their prey. 
Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. They've they've just um, they're they're just in the process of filming, aren't they, for the um, Vampire Chronicles and the other Anne Rice works that yes. the rights have been taken up with now. So it'll be interesting to see how those portrayals do actually come across yes. into into the latest iteration yeah. of those things see, later in the year. Exactly, and you see, you have this deception. We you know with Bram Stoker's Dracula. He's a decept- He's he's a he's the type of vampire that will trick you. So they, he when Jonathan Harker arrives at the castle, there's this big flourish, and he lifts up all these um, tops of the dishes, and of course it's all cold food, and he doesn't eat, he doesn't participate in the in the food. So Jonathan, you feel Jonathan Harker's kind of loneliness, and um, and you sympathise with him rather than with the vampire. But lately, all the the, the kind of latest vampires, you would sympathise more with them in many ways. And, you know, so that's an interesting change in, in how we view these particular monsters. Yes, of course, because because Jonathan Harker is, is being presented with a social situation where that social aspect can't be present because he can't have anybody to dine with. No. So all the mechanisms for it are there, aren't they? Yes. Apart from the social aspect. Exactly. I mean, in just generally, even in Disney, I mean, we, we're looking at these characters and these darker characters. I mean, even Cruella de Vil or Maleficent, you know, we're looking at their backstories and like, why did they become so monstrous? Why did they become evil? And we're sympathising with them. So isn't that an interesting kind of twist in how, how we view these characters that have always been evil? And now, you know, we're trying to understand why. Do you think that means that we're losing the monstrous aspect of of this kind of literature i think it goes hand in hand with thinking that in many ways we are more accepting of the monstrous because the monstrous is closer to who we are and i think that is reflected in food you know the othering of food it's a sense of anxiety when you're not cultivating your own vegetables anymore you're not rearing your pigs you're not you know slaughtering your own cattle you actually don't know what goes into your body and I think subconsciously, unconsciously, this sense of um, the unknown, the mystery, um, is very, very, very unsettling. And I think that's what's happening. We're letting the monster inside ourselves. Uh, and we're trying to be sympathetic towards it because we have to live with ourselves as well. So we're trying to justify that in many ways. And I, I think that might be a reflection of, of this, you know, this othering that becomes part of us. Tell us uh your favorites from this forthcoming book both the, the your favorite uh piece of gothic literature and why you chose to use that and your favorite recipe and and why and they don't need to be from the same thing of course either do they no um one of my favorites is i have to say is rosemary's baby i think it's just such a well written book and the film is just as good um i think you get everything in there which is gothic and gothic food the tension you you know you have the devil you have the mystery you have uh the struggle within the couple um you have this Faustian sense of you know something terrible is going to happen and um you have death and you you know you have you have pregnancy as well you have the unknown inside your own body and how that's portrayed. And I think it's just so masterfully done. And there's this scene where you have this intrusive neighbor. They're, you know, a couple that have just moved into this 
a big, a very attractive apartment block, which didn't cost that much to rent. And so, you know, already some suspicions are, are raised. And Rosemary and Guy, the husband, um, are just a normal couple, appear to be a normal couple. And they start receiving these visits from a very intrusive neighbour who brings all manner of kind of smoothies, foods, um, desserts, just to try and, you know, be neighbourly. Um, but Rosemary has a sense that there's something not quite right with this, with this and with the food that she's being given. And so you have this eerie sense that builds and builds until the terrible thing does happen. But it's just how that happens through food is, is really, really effective in making you feel um, like it's, it's horrifying. And um, Minnie brings them um, some mousses and they're chocolate mousses. And when Rosemary eats one of them, uh, they're topped with different types of nuts. So there's, there's underlying some sort of kind of signal that Guy is in on this because he chooses one of the mousses that has, I think, the walnut or another type of nut. So Rosemary's left with with this other mousse that we then find out is laced with something, but she knows, so she's eating it and she's like, mm, this has a really chalky undertaste. It doesn't taste right. And Guy insists, what are you talking about? Eat it, eat it. So you see the pressure between it, within the couple and how she feels kind of pushed into eating it. So all the issues of control and oppression that as well come come to the, to the fore through food, which is really interesting. Um, and and then she spits it out into her handkerchief, but it's too late because she has ingested some of it. And following that, she has this terrible nightmare. So we've actually done these mousses and they won't have a chalky undertaste, but they are white and they're topped with these nuts. So we've kind of taken inspiration from that. Um, and yeah, so that's one of my favourites, my absolute favourite. How, how many horror stories start with somebody coming around and saying, I've brought you an apple pie? <laughs> Exactly. And, or an apple. So I've just moved in next door. <laughs> Here, have this. It's yeah. um you won't die. <laughs> have you got have you got any particular favourite recipes that are in there from from the novels or from other sources? Well we're doing yeah, the a paprika hendor as well from um Dracula. Um and uh, that's spicy and really tasty. I mean, the thing that we talked about to begin with, Ella and I, was you don't want this book. The idea, you know, of the gothic book, I think um, the pushback was, oh, it's going to be full of like these gimmicky, disgusting recipes. It's not. It's all wholesome food, traditional food with great recipes and that will be an, a pleasure to eat. It's not, you know, this idea of gothic food and food and horror um, can be quite unsettling and disturbing because of what we see and what we're used to. We just think, oh, there'd be an eyeball, you know, in a soup or a tooth in a cake. You know, that's what you're used to. That's what you see. So I totally understand that people um, kind of question that, but we've we've explained it as much as we can. And uh, yes, yeah, hopefully when people um, pledge and they buy it, uh, they will see. Um, but yes. Yes. And let's come on to the, to finish off by looking at that process of, pledging and buying and and how this book is to come about so this is being published through unbound which means that a particular it's like a kickstarter isn't it a particular amount has to be raised through pledges in order for the book to go ahead now at the time of recording what is it now it's the beginning of may um we're on 90 percent 
Most I can't believe having it. Having been raised, which is absolutely awesome. So it's nearly there, isn't it? It is. So if, if people fancy uh, this book, and why wouldn't you after that description? Let's be honest about it. Um, and they want to go and pledge, and by doing so, um, then guarantee themselves a first edition and um, various other things. What will they be receiving? What options do they have available to them? There is the hardback copy with um, a signed hardback copy, non-signed hardback copy, um, paperback, an e-book as well. And then there are kind of different pledge levels where uh, there's even one where we'll bring you a Rebecca style tea um, with the cakes. So, you know, in person. So, <laughs> so that will be exciting. And um, yeah, so there's lots of different levels. And I think um, the cheapest one, yeah, there's a paperback that starts at 20, 25 pounds. Um, as, as you said, we're already 90% funded and we just can't believe it. It's really incredible. Um, we started in June, so it hasn't even been, you know, such a long time. So we weren't, we really weren't expecting it, but it's, it's just overall been a lot of uh, great responses and excitement over it. Yes, it's 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 gone really well, hasn't it? And that's that's great to see. And it shows that those publishers that said, well, there obviously isn't one because there's no market for it, sometimes need to consider that maybe there isn't one because nobody's thought of doing it yet. Yes, exactly. And, uh, I think, you know, it's a, it is a niche idea and I think you have to be personally invested. And I think there was, yes, just that kind of um, person in in Unbound that was enthusiastic about the Gothic understood the idea and could visualize it and see it and so that made all the difference to us um, so we're really happy to be working to be working with them because they they like the idea so let's see if we can't get that other 10% sorted out um, can you give people I will put a link on yes. the website and in the show notes etc cetera, etc cetera, but can you give people the URL as well if they want to go and have a look at the book in more detail absolutely so it's um unbound a gothic cookbook and if you use the discount code gothic pod 10 you get 10 percent off um yes and please do follow us as well at um at a gothic cookbook on twitter and instagram excellent thank you very much ali i will put that discount code and um the links in the show notes and on the Folklore Podcast website page for this episode so people can just go there with a single click and and pledge and hopefully we will get this to publication soon and then you can come back once that's happened and we can look in more detail at some of the contents of the book and um, have you on the book club to do an episode about it too so that would be brilliant. Uh, in the meantime you have now completed your PhD, we're 90% of the way through Gothic Cookbook. What's next for you? Well, at the moment, I have a few ideas on um, different books that I'd, I'd like to do, but one of them is a romance cookbook. So I'm really excited about that. So perhaps a similar concept, but looking at romance novels and lots of titillating food in those. <laughs> <laughs> I shall look forward to hearing more. Uh, in the meantime, thank you so much, Ali, for taking the time to come on and talk about a Gothic cookbook. And I wish you every success with your last 10%. I can't thank you enough. Thank you so much, Mark. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure. My thanks to Alessandra for discussing a Gothic cookbook. At the time of recording, the book is 93% funded on an Unbound. And so I hope it won't be too long until it sees publication. If you want to secure a copy for yourself, 
Along with some other perks for signing up early, you'll find a link to the book on the episode page for this episode on the Folklore Podcast website, or you can search Unbound for a Gothic cookbook. Thanks for joining us once again on the Folklore Podcast. This is an independent podcast which is part of the Folklore Network, bringing together organisations and individuals working with folklore into a support network for the future. If you work with the subject and would like to be a part of the network, please email thefolklorepodcast at gmail.com and tell me about yourself. You can also contact us there with other folklore news or questions. Don't forget, you can sign up to the podcast newsletter on our website. If you'd like more content and other rewards, then please consider joining our Patreon at patreon.com slash thefolklorepodcast to help us continue with what we do. Thanks for listening. See you next time.